From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Personalized medicine aims to customize healthcare by tailoring treatments to each individual patient. A growing part of this field is pharmacogenomics, studying how medications are affected by a person's unique genetic makeup. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. And a group of us at Mayo were able to have uh, whole genome sequencing. As it turns out, there was a pharmacogenetic finding in my sequencing. They found a variant in a gene that is implicated in a reaction to general anesthesia that can be life-threatening called malignant hyperthermia. Also on the program, we'll learn about the hazards of household cleaners. And how a cancer diagnosis changes one physician's perspective. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. When prescribing a medication for you, your doctor considers many factors, including your age, sex, weight, and current health conditions. Now you may be able to add your unique genetic characteristics to that list. Hmm. Pharmacogenomics is the term used to describe the use of genomic information to help select the right medication for patients. The right drug can mean maximizing the treatment benefits or, maybe more importantly, avoiding harmful, sometimes life-threatening side effects. And here to discuss that are Dr. Timothy Curry and Dr. Michael Stevens. Dr. Curry is the Education Program Director and frequent guest here at the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. And Dr. Stevens is the Chair of Pediatric Gastroenterology at Mayo Clinic, who had pharmacogenomics testing done and received some surprising results. Welcome to the program, both of you. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Well, pharmacogenomics definitely something that people are interested in. And why is it so important? First of all, tell us what it is. Sure. Well, so pharmacogenomics is understanding or the study of the genetic information related to medications. And it can be everything from how well they may work in your body, particularly how they might interact with other medications uh, or maybe avoiding really severe side effects. I think that's what we're here to talk about today. Exactly. And Dr. Stevens, why don't you tell us what you learned? Tell us a little bit about your story. Well, my research interest uh, has always been included pharmacogenetics and genetic testing. And a group of us at Mayo were able to have uh, whole genome sequencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it w- it's mainly people that were interested in genetics. Benefit of the workplace. Exactly, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as it turns out, um, there, there was a pharmacogenetic finding in my sequencing. Uh, they found uh, a variant in a gene that is implicated in a reaction to general anesthesia that can be life-threatening called malignant hyperthermia. Dr. Curry, you are an anesthesiologist. What might have happened? Yeah, and in fact, I was the one that got that phone call, and I was the one that was able to put it in the medical record. So next time you do have surgery that in our system, it'll pop up. But, of course, there's other places where you may need to have that, and people need to take that precaution. So malignant hyperthermia is one of those words that gets an anesthesiologist's attention. It's a potentially fatal problem, and it's a problem with one of the receptors that deals with how calcium moves into the cell. So on a cellular level, calcium is what causes our muscles to contract. And with this mutation, when their cell cells are exposed to certain drugs, uh, general anesthetics, the gases that people talk about when they breathe them, or certain drugs used to relax uh, the muscles, it can cause uncontrolled calcium release, which causes uncontrolled muscle contraction, which causes very, very high fevers, high heart rates. The body essentially begins to burn itself up with it then. 
Now, we have a specific antidote for it. That's the good news, and we're always looking for this. But if we know about it ahead of time, it's very easy to change our medications and use ones that would cause a, or result in a safe anesthetic. It's well known here at Mayo Clinic. This used to be, used to be one of the testing centers. There's, a, there's a, a, a confirmatory test, and there's actually a group up in the Midwest, particularly in Wisconsin, that are, are susceptible to this. So when you got that information, what did you do? Uh, actually, uh, I, I asked, I called up my friends who are interested in pharmacogenetics to find out if this really was something that uh, I should be worried about. In the end, uh, it was reviewed by uh, the anesthesia group in the, pharma, in the Center for Individualized Medicine, uh, and uh, my pediatrician referred my daughter to have genetic testing to find out if she was at risk for this, and it turns out, happily, she's not. Yeah. Well, what if Dr. Stevens is he's traveling? Are we going to be at a point where his genetic record will go with him wherever he goes? So the organizations that really focus on this problem will recommend that. It's a personal choice, but you can wear a medical alert bracelet. Oh, sure. And you carry that with you, so you always have that in your records. But I think, you know, and this is what HIPAA, ultimately, it's the, the Portability Act, was the portability of healthcare information. That was a big part of that because that's one of the problems right now is when you go somewhere else, you don't carry that information, and it can be challenging to be able to do it. And it's not just in anesthesia. It's in everything and all of our medications. And hopefully with the integration of all of our medical systems, that's what we'll see. So... When I think of pharmacogenomics, I think of the medications that people are taking. This is a surgical implication that I would not have considered. Or is there anything else that I'm not thinking of, medications or surgery? Any other reason that uh, your genetic profile would make a difference? Well, you use this a lot of times in your care as well. Right. We use this uh, in the care of uh, very young children with inflammatory bowel diseases. So um, my specialty is uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, and there are over 200 genes that are connected to to those diseases for the, maybe the typical patient. Uh, but it's the atypical patient that we're really interested in and where genetic testing seems to be helpful. So children who develop these problems under the age of six often actually have much more rare genetically caused diseases uh, that mimic things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And so we're, we're doing genetic testing to try to identify those diseases and find a more specific answer for that individual. I guess I'm curious, what percentage of patients have actually had this done? I mean, so if you're seeing this with young kids, we're seeing this with people who are part of this original uh, kind of sequencing, um, how many people are undergoing these tests? At least in the realm of inflammatory bowel disease, it's probably a minority of patients, and, and we're really focusing on the patients where we're most likely to find a specific answer. So you're starting with the kids, you said, younger than six that yeah. you're doing that with? Uh, very young patients. Sure. And then other kind of unique situations. Another example is families where multiple generations are affected. Mm. That's generally unusual for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Other People who are ahead of the curve, I guess, on genetic testing, Dr. Curry. So we've got the people who were in the biobank study. Yep. I, I'm in that. Are you in that, Dr. Strong? I don't think I'm in this Yeah, study. you got to get in there. I get all kinds of cool information <laughs> from that study. Um, uh, where, where else? So I think pharmacogenomics is where you're going to see most of the testing early on because that makes the most sense to most providers along the way. When we do these exploratory sequencings of the whole genetic diversity of the, of the human, uh, it's really challenging. Um, for example, you find out things that you don't know the answer to. So some people end up having a mutation in the receptor that we don't know if it's a problem or not. And so it gets really challenging to do these sort of exploratory studies, especially when you're not looking for something and you get it. However, if you're doing studies on how your genetics affect medications, we're getting to the point now where we can provide concrete 
um, information, concrete recommendations uh, in the forms of reports and in the forms of consults. And so I think Mayo Clinic and the Center for Individualized Medicine sort of vision is that everyone will have that information available and that the pharmacists and the physicians can use that information to uh, help prescribe medications at the time that it comes, not just in response to looking for a problem, but trying to prevent problems down the line. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We have to take a break. We're discussing pharmacogenomics with Dr. Timothy Curry from the Center of Individualized Medicine and Dr. Michael Stevens, a physician who took part in pharmacogenomics testing. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the future. Will this type of testing become a standard part of care? Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about pharmacogenomics testing with Dr. Timothy Curry and Dr. Michael Stevens, who had pharmacogenomics testing done and received some surprising results. So, Dr. Stevens, what was that conversation like for the rest of the family members? It was somewhat alarming to my wife to hear about that. It hadn't dawned on me that we probably should have my daughter tested until Mm -hmm. I talked to my wife about it. We also found that I was a carrier for some very rare uh, diseases as most people are, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was kind of interesting. Not that you've ever had, but that's just right there. Right. What right. about any uh, siblings or parents? Did you have any other family members tested? Uh, I did not, and I'm in a little bit of a unique situation because I'm adopted, and so oh. I don't know a lot about sure. uh, who I'm genetically related to. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, Dr. Curry. As we go forward now, and this becomes something that at some point everyone will have a little category of our record. So it'll make healthcare better if we can have the information in our workflows and we know how to use it. And that's what my role is uh, as the education director for individualized medicine. It's my job to make people aware of what this information is out there, but also to understand how to use it in their care. When's the right time to use it? When's the not, right, not the right time to use it? And when do we need to consider other factors that are not genetically related? And as we gain more knowledge about what this information means, we'll be better able to do that down the line. So when we think about that piece of it, how do you integrate that? What sort of training do physicians need to have to to figure out how best to use this information? What we're starting with is going back as early as we can, back into the, actually even into the grade schools, um, but really in the medical school level. That's where you start, and and those are the individuals that are going to be bringing that information forward and helping us down the line. But everyone needs to understand where the information is, um, when to use it, how to use it best, and how to use it to explain to their patients at the same time what this means to their health care. I was going to say, I had a, actually a patient walk in, in into my outpatient practice um, a couple of weeks ago with a report from a commercially available company. And so I'm kind of wondering, so is this something that people are paying for out of pocket? I mean, this person did. Are some people getting this covered by insurance? What's been your experience in, in the landscape here at Mayo? So you can get it here at Mayo Clinic. Um, it costs about $250, and more and more insurances are starting to uh, to pay for it. Um, you obviously want to check with your ins- specific insurance company ahead of time to see if it does. Um, but people are now starting to pay for it out of pocket even because they realize that it's something that could help. There are lots of companies that are starting to bring this forward, and that's one of the challenges as a physician is understanding what each company's testing is, how good it is, and how to interpret the reports that they're bringing to you. Is there, gonna, is there any way to standardize those? I cannot tell you the number of relatives who had this done as a Christmas present last year. And so uh, each of them uh, come with a different angle on why they're doing, why they're having this testing done. 
we run into this problem throughout medicine. I mean, you get x-rays from other places or lab reports, and, and it isn't standard. And that's one of the really hard parts about, especially a place like Mayo Clinic, where a lot of our patients come from somewhere else, is understanding how to use this information. So standardization is good, particularly the knowledge base behind it. And there's lots of groups that are really trying to help get the education out there for people to interpret it, both when it is standardized and when it's not. Well, let's say that you uh, have listened to this interview and it's been so inspiring to you that you want to go and get it. Te- you want to get the testing done. Um, just specifically so that you know for your medications. Because right now you could be taking medications that would be affected by the information that you would find through the genetic testing, correct? Yep, and the place to start is with your physician. Right. Um, you need to go and have that conversation about what is the right thing to do at this time Is this and, and learn a little bit more about it. What are the implications for your family? I mean, I think we heard very mm-hmm. interesting comments here. Whether you're adopted or you're not, um, there's lots of implications for talking to your parents and your and your siblings about this. Um, but that conversation has to be decided of what the testing is going to be and how we're going to use it going forward. And that is a it's a shared decision. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear a lot about that in medicine now. That's a decision that you, your physician, your provider, um, to be able to do that so that when you do get that information, you've got a plan on how to use it going forward. I, I know that one of the things that people are concerned about, maybe worried about even, is if insurance companies want to have their fingers in it so they can see what your genetic makeup is. And people are concerned, you know, what if I find out that you could get a serious illness? Well, um, it's in your medical record, and so it's out there, and something we need to think about. There are laws that are out there. There's a Genetic Non-Discriminatory Act um, that the United States, not everyone is followed under that, so if you're in the military, you run into a different set of, uh, of, of things to consider. Um, so that information isn't supposed to be used against you in, in your gaining insurance down the line, but there's still there's still a lot of conversation about this. And so the what we call the ethical, legal, and social implications, we call it LC, that's a really important thing about having these conversations. And that's why it starts with a shared decision. And I'm sure you see that in your own care, right. too. And that, you know, and um, that's a part of when we're doing this type of testing on, on my patients, we involve a genetics counselor to talk about that. And you kind of alluded to this a little bit, you know, it's possible you may find information that's predictive of things that may happen to you in the future, and not everybody wants to know that. Um, the classic example is a disease called, called um, Huntington's chorea, which is we really don't have a treatment. It's a devastating disease, and it typically happens in your 30s or 40s. So that's a unique and kind of the most extreme example of that, but... Um, it, it, it needs to be discussed and, and, and a part of the decision-making process. I'm sorry, go well, ahead. So some of these tests are very specific, and that's things like pharmacogenomics. But as we start to get into cheaper sequencing in general, you're starting to look at the whole genes, all the genes, the whole genome sequencing that you went under. These conversations are going to be more important because people will have the decision to make, do I just look at something that I want to know about, like, for drugs, or do I want to look at everything? And the drugs will be in there, but I'm going to learn some other things about myself I may not want to know about. It may have something to do with Alzheimer's. It may have something to do with cancer. Or it may have something to do with a devastating and untreatable disease. All right, uh, Dr. Curry, tell us what the right... 10K study is. What does that mean? Sure, and this is sort of related to the same subject. But the right 10K study or the right protocol is a study looking to figure out if we put this information in the medical record, how would someone like Dr. Stevens benefit from it down the line? How would our health system in general and how would our health care and, and wellness ultimately uh, benefit? So what we're doing is we're looking at about 10,000 participants in what we call the Mayo Clinic Biobank who have agreed to let their samples be used for DNA sequencing, putting that information into the medical record and be, having it be there for individuals or physicians, prescribers, uh, nurses to be able to use to help guide their their patients' uh, care. 
In the past, when you've been here, Dr. Curry, one of the things that you're working on is how to train physicians to look, even look for this information. It's one thing to have it in your record, but another thing, as I was sharing with you before we got going, the last time I got a prescription, I asked my doctor, can you check? Because I was in that biobank study, so I do know that there are um, I'm an over-metabolizer of some medications and an under-metabolizer of others, and she hadn't even thought to look there. And sure enough, it was a medication that was affected. How do you teach a doctor, <laughs> doctors, how do you teach a doctor to look for that information? Well, one of the ways is we do it is habit? we put it into their workflows, and I think right. that's one of the most important things. So, for example, now when I open up Dr. Stevens' preoperative records, there will be a pop-up that says, risk of malignant hyperthermia. And we're using other clinical decision support at the bedside to be able to hit the same things. I think you use some of that in some of your practice too. Right. There's a, a group of medicines that we used to prescribe quite broadly for Crohn's disease called thiopurines. And people can have a pharmacogenetic risk to have bone marrow suppression with that. And that Mayo incorporated that. I've never seen this anywhere else into our electronic health record that every time I ordered that test, it asked me what that patient's genetic result was so that I would, I would prompt me to look at that. And I'm curious with kind of building on that same question. So if you're an over-metabolizer or an mm -hmm. under-metabolizer, what does that actually mean for how that drug is going to work in you? So what studies are ongoing to help us better determine that? So we're doing lots of different studies now throughout Mayo Clinic. Some of them are in the pediatric uh, gastrointestinal uh, disease clinic. Some of them are within surgery to try to find out um, if you burn through a drug or over-metabolize a drug too quickly, will you not have enough of an effect? Um, or if it's a drug that gets activated by those, by those enzymes, could it have too much of an effect? And there's a classic example of that with codeine. And if, uh, if certain individuals metabolize it too quickly, they may have too much codeine in their system that gets turned into morphine, and they can have really serious side effects, including slowing down their breathing. And so those different things mean different things. Uh, and that's the hard part. So under and over are not so simple along the way. And that's why it really takes having a physician to help interpret these results um, to be able to understand what the implication is. And that physician needs to understand then, or that prescriber, and that pharmacist that's helping, because they're critical in this whole process, need to be able to understand what the implications are for each individual. That's why the reports are nice. They help guide you along the way, but it takes a level of understanding. And that's what education is all about. We've been talking about pharmacogenomics testing with Dr. Timothy Curry and Dr. Michael Stevens. Dr. Curry is the Education Program Director at Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, and Dr. Stevens is the Chair of Pediatric Gastroenterology at Mayo Clinic. He took part in pharmacogenomic testing. Thanks, both of you, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the hazards of household cleaners. And later on in the show, how a personal cancer journey changed one physician's perspective. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. A migraine is much more than just a bad headache. Symptoms can be debilitating for many people. Migraines are the sixth leading cause of disability, according to the World Health Organization. While there's no cure, a new study shows single-pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation is a way to prevent migraine attacks. It's safe, easy to use, and non-invasive. Researchers at Mayo Clinic and other centers conducted the study that examined the effectiveness of using the device to prevent migraine attacks. Mayo Clinic Dr. Amal Starling says their study demonstrated that the four pulses emitted from this device twice daily reduced the frequency of headache days by about three days per month, and 46% of patients had at least 50% or less migraine attacks per month on the treatment protocol.
Dr. Starling adds that for certain patients, treatment options for migraines such as oral medications are not effective, well-tolerated, or preferred, and this may be a great option for these patients. And in other news, you are what you eat, or more accurately, you are what you feed the trillions of little critters that live in your gut. The lining of your gut, like every surface of your body, is covered in microscopic creatures, mostly bacteria. These organisms create a micro-ecosystem called the microbiome. And though we really don't notice it's there, it plays an oversized role in your health and can even affect your mood and behavior. There are two ways to maintain a good balance, helping the microbes already there to grow by giving them the foods they like, which are prebiotics, and adding living microbes directly to your system, which are called probiotics. Now, prebiotics are specialized plant fibers. They act like fertilizers that stimulate the growth of healthy bacteria in the gut. Prebiotics are found in many fruits and vegetables, especially those that contain complex carbohydrates such as fiber and resistant starch. Probiotics are different in that they contain live organisms, usually specific strains of bacteria that directly add to the population of healthy microbes in your gut. Like prebiotics, you can take probiotics through both food and supplements. Probably the most common probiotic food is yogurt. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Lung Association, lung function slowly declines after about age 35. A recent international study found that women with regular exposure to cleaning products may have more rapid decline in lung function over time. Those most effective were women who worked as professional cleaners. Uh oh. More than 6,000 <laughs> participants were studied over two decades, and researchers found that women who used spray cleaning products at least once a week showed the fastest decline in lung function. Exposure to cleaning products wasn't linked to a decline in lung function for men, however, but the authors admit that this may be because there were so few professional male cleaners that were in the study. Here to discuss is the Division Chair of Preventative Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Clayton Cole. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cole. It's good to have you here. Thanks. Nice to be here. So um, this isn't about I should not be cleaning my bathroom anymore? That would be a good excuse, but, (laughs) well, I think it's, uh, you know, the study is bigger than that. I mean, and basically what it is is uh, this is an epidemiologic study looking at a large cohort of individuals that spend their days cleaning, And, and so... You know, just by exposure alone, this is a higher risk group in general. So it doesn't necessarily mean that women in general are more susceptible. Women in this particular cohort that were exposed directly to these products were found to have decreases in lung function. So what do we mean when we say lung function? Well, what happened is is they do breathing tests, uh, what we refer to as spirometry. And spirometry is where a technician will have you blow hard and fast into a tube and it measures how well during each part of the breath that you're able to exhale that air. And it's just one marker of how we sort of get a a general sense of how you're doing in terms of your air flow out of the lung. Why did, why does that decline the older you get? Well, I you know, there's a variety of reasons, but as we age, uh, for example, our thoracic and abdominal excursion, we call it, the ability to take a deep breath is a little less um, the the uh, at a cellular level, at the alveolus, the little air sac where the oxygen and carbon dioxide is exchanged, um, doesn't quite function as well as 
when we're, say, in our 20s. And, and so uh, we know that after even as early as in your 30s or 40s, and in particular more in your 50s or 60s, um, that you lose a little bit of this airflow function each year. Now, there are other factors that can contribute to that. So those would be, you know, certainly if you're a smoker, we know that the decline rate is more. And if you're exposed to known respiratory irritants like smoke and dust and chemical fumes, that it may be a little bit more. And this study just attests to that. Well, and, and so kind of on that last point, the chemical fumes, were you able to figure out which chemical cleaners were most dangerous? Well, I don't think it really pointed that out, but there are certain types that are commonly seen, especially in a household environment. And again, cleaners can be, you know, industrial cleaners can be using, you know, window cleaners to working in hotels and that type of thing where there's a lot of exposure. But for the average person cleaning around the house, the things that you have to be thinking about are things like phthalates, which are founded many fragranced uh, household products, which are known to be disruptors of endocrine function. So there's been some studies looking at decreased sperm counts in men and uh, disruption in menstrual cycles in women and for higher exposures. Things like where um, common like bleach and ammonia and things like that, that, that off-gas. So in other words, when you take a deep breath, you know, when you smell ammonia, wow, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know right. you're in it. And so mixing that with bleach, for example, creates a different compound, which is uh, certain types of chlorinated compounds that cause a lot of damage to the airway in the lung. And so every once in a while we'll get referrals for someone cleaning at home and they have their head down in a tub. They've put bleach to kind of disinfect it and then throw some ammonia on there. And all of a sudden now they've got a hypochlorite gas that they're breathing in because it settles. Not good for the respiratory system. So most of the time do the patients end up with like emphysema or what ends up happening to their lungs? Well, it's more on a cellular basis. So as opposed to you're not going to see necessarily instant change in terms of uh, on an x-ray or even on the pulmonary function testing in a short period of time. That's why you notice the study is over years where you see the difference. But again, the dose alone determines the poison. So if it's a small amount, but continually over a long period of time, it can have the same types of effect as a larger exposure over a shorter period of time. Do we do we think with these findings there's a way to branch out and say, well, you know, if this happened with this group of individuals, are there other professions or jobs that need to be careful in, in their exposure when we think about lung function? Well, I mean, I think it's it's not even so much about the occupational aspects, although certainly in any occupation we always look at, you know, gee, are there uh, ways to substitute products? Are there engineering controls like better local exhaust ventilation or things like that that we can do on a local type level to, you know, help decrease the concentration of an exposure? So I think on a, again, Coning down to the average uh, uh, homemaker uh, that's cleaning at home, I think we're all consumers, and I think picking products that are less toxic is important, particularly when you are cleaning over time on a daily basis. And this isn't in an industrial application. It's at home. (laughs) Daily. That's funny. I'm sorry. I'm sure like my wife think, yeah. is laughing as like we speak. I clean daily. <laughs> what are some other uh, household hazards that we should watch out for? Uh, certain uh, types of fabric softeners uh, that have what are called quaternary ammonium compounds or otherwise referred to as quats. 
Um, I, it, I thought we weren't supposed to use fabric softeners at all. Well, I mean, certain types are okay, and actually there are some do-it-yourself type products that you can mix. There's some excellent materials out that you can, uh, a literature that you can uh, uh, kind of uh, make your own concoctions at home made up of natural products. You know, things like vinegar or acetic acid is a great natural cleaner for a lot of different things, and I think used appropriately can get the job done without the toxic effects that we that you can have from other products. In the end, it all comes back to Heloise. We should have just followed Heloise. is all about baking soda and vinegar. There you have it. <laughs> is there anything else that you want listeners to learn about what the study showed? Well, I think, you know, in general, when you think about toxic compounds, you know, one of the things at home, you know, especially families with small children, is that they can get into big trouble when they're curious. And I think locking those cabinets or putting it in areas that are non-accessible to them is a great preventive strategy to avoid the whole discussion about toxicity at that level in terms of poisoning. And then ultimately choosing products that are safer, that are more environmentally friendly are, is always a good idea. You know, and making sure there's adequate ventilation on a local level, you know, making sure that you take time to turn on a fan, open a window and the, and the like. We've been talking about the hazards of household cleaners with the division chair of preventative medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Clayton Cole. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Cole. Great to be here. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear a story about a change in perspective when the physician becomes the patient. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Stram. And I'm Tracy McRae. As a physician and health researcher, Dr. Rosalina McCoy has often counseled patients on avoiding unnecessary testing and treatment. Dr. McCoy was doing her part to help patients keep costs down by avoiding low-value tests. It's an easy thing to preach, but as Dr. McCoy has come to find out, not so easy to practice. Yeah, last year, Dr. McCoy was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And during her own cancer journey, she has gained new understanding about the fears and worries of being a patient. Here to share her story is Mayo Clinic primary care physician, Dr. Rosalina McCoy. Welcome to the program, Dr. McCoy. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So just last year you were diagnosed. Yeah, I was diagnosed right after Christmas, between the Christmas week and New Year's week. was a great way to start the year. Um, But it also meant that I got to welcome this year all healthy and cancer-free. How did it all start? Um, I think like many patients, I just noticed that I got really tired. And in retrospect, it probably started about a month before I presented, but you always attribute it to little kids and work and a 10-month-old and a two-year-old and and being busy overall. But I think when I got to the point a month into it of going from running a seven-minute mile, six miles a day, to not being able to go up a flight of stairs, I said, hmm, it probably is not a virus. <laughs> Hold on yeah. a second. How is this buried in the lead? You run a seven-minute mile with before this happened? Used to. I worked up for it after baby number two. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm totally impressed. I never got that. I never got that, not that fast. I'm at about That's 11 impressive. and a half. I could <laughs> never keep up with you. Okay, so you uh, started feeling tired. Mm-hmm. And how were you diagnosed? So I ended up uh, speaking with one of my colleagues, another uh, primary care physician. I just explained that I am exhausted. I can't do anything. Can't get up. Can't shower. It's not, I'm not just tired like we all are. And I felt like I had to make excuses for like all other patients that really believe me, something is wrong. So she ran a whole bunch of tests, uh, blood work, and the only thing that came po- uh, came back positive was uh, CK, 
uh, cell marker muscle breakdown. And, and they ended up telling me that I have dermatomyositis. I went to see a rheumatology who said, well, just pro forma, we should do a CT scan. You know, you're young. This is going to be just isolated dermatomyositis, not like older people in whom there's a cancer underneath. At that point, I mentioned, by the way, I've got this lymph node that grew mm-hmm. from nothing to about 10 centimeters. Maybe we should biopsy that. <laughs> so we did the CT scan and ordered um, a neck ultrasound and biopsy. And on the CT that evening, we saw lymph nodes everywhere, masses everywhere. And when I was doing the ultrasound, which was the following day, um, I know how to read neck ultrasound. So when I looked at the uh, at my neck, it's like, okay, that's going to be lymphoma. Nothing else looks like it. Mm. And one of my colleagues was doing the biopsy, uh, who knew me from when I was a fellow. He's like, yep, yep, that's going to be Hodgkin's. <laughs> so it was pretty much my way to to be diagnosed. Uh, it was actually good because after the CT scan, my husband, who was reading up about dermatomyositis, uh, said, oh, you probably have ovarian cancer. <laughs> oh, boy. So this was a much better. Yeah, take right. Hodgkin's any time yep. over that. So, Dr. Strand, there's three of us sitting here at the table, and two of us have had Hodgkin's lymphoma. I, it's almost, it's, you kind of don't want to <laughs> say about the odds, because that's just, it's a it's an incredible coincidence. And, and also just to be then able to have this conversation, because right. there's, uh, as I think we were talking before we started, there's a lot that's changed with Hodgkin's treatments, and yet there's a lot of similarities. And so it's interesting. I'm curious, you know, as you talk through this, what was your perspective as you thought through, you know, you've taken care of a lot of patients who I imagine have come in with complaints about fatigue Mm -hmm. and want tests done. And so, so Mm -hmm. how did, how did you kind of think through the way you talked to those patients and how you were talking to yourself? I mean, I think the first thing, um, I think it probably led me to come in later than I would have because I discounted it and I did not want to be the patient who bothers my doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, then when I was there and something actually was wrong, I, I actually was somewhat proud of myself because I never, I think I never discounted, I hope I never discounted my patients when they came to me and they said that they were tired. I feel like every single patient complaint deserves one thorough evaluation. If you've had that and nothing changed, I think it's different, but every person deserves to be taken seriously. Um, so I was proud of myself for, for doing that. Um, and now I'm even more cognizant of yeah. that. I think I spell it out to patients to to make sure they realize that I'm not. I am listening. I'm not discounting what you're telling me. And this is what I'm recommending. And this is why. And that's why it is what you want. Um, and if it's not, please, please correct me. So I think that was very helpful. Tell me. us about. Uh what it was like for you as a physician to be diagnosed. I mean, I'm sure you go through the same emotions that all of us go through when we're diagnosed. Um, I, so I'm a primary care physician and I specialize in diabetes management. I, I don't, I'm not good with cancer treatment um, mm-hmm. other than my residency. I haven't done anything with hematologic or malignancies. Hodgkin's is rare. I have never had a, my own patient with it. So I uh, made a conscious effort not to read the primary literature while I was being evaluated Mm. and diagnosed. I told my husband, you do it. You make sure everything is done right. Uh, And that keeps him less stressed Mm -hmm. uh, when he can be busy and reading things um, and doing the logistical things. So I think that helped me not worry and not think about all the other things that it could be. It helped that I have incredible trust in my hematologist. Uh, she's a wonderful doctor, and I'm extremely grateful for her putting up with me. 
as a physician, one of the things that you are trying to do through your practice is help patients mm-hmm. keep costs down with mm-hmm. the low value tests. And mm-hmm. then you become a cancer survivor. And now you have to try to find a balance of those two. I'm sure that has changed a little bit the way that you view that whole decision. Yeah, I mean, I think initially, even before my research, it wasn't just about the cost. I think with uh, diabetes in particular, you know, the reason for a lot of my work was to show that over-testing, yes, it costs money, but ultimately it causes problems to patients, right? It can cause you to be over-treated, to have things done that aren't necessary, and ultimately that can lead to over-treatment and lend you up in the hospital for no good benefit. So it wasn't always about the money, but it was one of the things that I kind of told patients mm-hmm. that, well, it's just not worth the money that you pay for it. And now I realize that that's really not a good argument, and it can come across as saying that, well, you just don't think my needs or my concerns are worth it to you. So I think costs are important on a bigger level, but not to the individual patient, because that's not why we make our decisions as mm-hmm. physicians. So why is why am I saying it in my justification? Well, you, you described me earlier, you described a really nice example of when somebody comes in and you're talking through, um, here's here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Here's mm-hmm. I want to know your opinion. It really outlining that model of shared decision making. And, and I'm wondering, is how you do that, has that changed a bit now, having probably gone through it with mm-hmm. part of your cancer care? Yeah, so I used to be a firm, I think I still am a firm believer in shared decision making. Um, but I think my... Uh, idea of what it is, is very different. So I used to think that it's about me giving patients guided options and the patient and helping the patient decide. And I think that puts too much weight on patients, especially in the acute situation when it's not a chronic disease, where it's the same decision every single time, but it's something that they don't know anything about. When um, I had to, I had to face the decision, for example, midway through my treatment about whether to continue bleomycin, one of the drugs, or stop it um, after two months, it was sort of given, this is the data, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I want to live, so you tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that exemplifies why the pitfalls of shared decision making. So now, I think I try to tell patients, this is, these are the options this is the rationale for each of the options. I think this is what is most aligned with what you want to do because such and such. Does that sound right? Yeah. Because that takes the weight off of patients. I mean, some people, and it gives them the opportunity to either say, no, that's not what I want to do, or thank you for making the decision, or whatever is that they're more comfortable with at that time. How is your health now? How are you doing? I think I'm good. <laughs> Again, knock on wood. Knock on wood. Hope to be here in many, many years. <laughs> Excellent. We've been talking with uh, Mayo Clinic physician Dr. Rosalina McCoy about her own cancer journey and how it changed her perspective in helping patients cope with life-threatening diseases. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McCoy. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Jacob Strand. And I'm Tracy McCray. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.